We talk so much about research and we talk so much about how do we come to the right price. Firstly, pricing is, is inherently a balancing act, to your point, right? It's, it's baked into how it impacts everything that you do as a business uh, and your customers. Uh, secondly, it's so important to realize that pricing is also a testing and iterating game. And what I mean by that is, to your point, it's, it's really hard to come up at the exact right price at the very beginning. And I think we were talking about this, but Harvard Business Review did a, did a really great classification of all of the metrics that we have as a business. And one of the things that's really hard to nail down was the initial pricing for a product. When you're going to launch with a new product, especially in a new market, and it's an innovative solution, uh, you don't have much to go by in terms of what, where you need to price that and how it goes. And so I would say, you know, make sure you're not going into, you know, decision paralysis where you're, you're churning your wheels and you're not understanding where it goes. But testing and iterating is really important to get to the place where it really makes sense. Welcome to the Product Marketing Life podcast, brought to you by the Product Marketing Alliance and hosted by me, Mark Cassini, Product Marketing Manager at Jobber. Every two weeks, I pull insights from some of the world's most talented product marketers to uncover the secret sauce of successful product marketing. In this episode, I'm joined by Vashnavi Ravi, founder and consultant at Market Maven. V has spent a decade dedicated to product marketing and product management, more recently setting up PMM departments at startups and scale-ups from scratch. In fact, she credits her time in product marketing across different industries as one of the primary reasons she started Market Maven, a product marketing consulting firm. In her last role, she was the director of product marketing at a B2B manufacturing tech company, Polka. And today, V offers product marketing, go-to-market, and product strategy services to companies in the B2B space looking to understand their customers and find their voice. During our chat, V shares how she and a cross-functional team at Polka rehauled their solutions pricing and go-to-market approach. She explains how reflecting on their product team's evolution helped to drive the decision to change pricing, and how she and the team navigated re-going to market with a modularized product. All right, with that out of the way, let's dive in. Hey, Vashnavi, how's it going? Going well, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. Super excited to have you here today. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah, of course. So let's get right into it then. I think it'd be great if you could give me a brief overview of your career so far and what you do today at Market Maven. Sure. Um, I started out at bigger companies like Google and Bell, uh, where I got into product marketing after my MBA at Ivy. Uh, more recently, I worked with a diverse set of startups and scale-ups uh, coming in on the ground floor and setting up product marketing as a function and a department. Uh, I enjoyed it so much, which is really the reason I actually started off a, a consultancy called Market Maven, where I come in to provide a strong voice for products and solutions for a variety of industries and companies. Very cool. And have you found in that experience of coming in and helping other companies set up their product marketing team, then that has become like a growing need of even some of the clients that you've worked with more recently as a consultant? Are you finding that some of the companies that you've worked with have identified product marketing as a strategic position, but just don't know the you know best path forward to set up the role? Yeah, it's when you talked about the latter, it's, it's really about companies realizing that this is much more of a strategic function than just a launch function, right? And which is what it started off as. And so I'm seeing a lot more companies looking at that as a core 
requirement for their company to be successful, especially in a, in a stage where they're changing so much and they're, and they're growing. You really need a product marketer to come in and see what's happening and get a 360-degree view. And of course, the more I talk to people, the more they realize the importance of it as well. So it happens both ways, but I'm happy to see that there are more companies reaching out and understanding the value of it and proactively ensuring that they have a strong product marketing function within their organization. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I'm curious, are you finding that a lot of those teams are being spun up or live within marketing or product or elsewhere? Because I, you know, I think depending on who I speak with in the company itself, I tend to get different different answers to where product marketing lives. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? That's true. Um, even in my career in the past, when I've been working with organizations, I've I've been both in part of product as a as a product marketer, but also as part of marketing. And I really think it depends on, I've seen both and I'm seeing a bit more of marketing recently, but it depends on the needs of the organization. Um, when you're having a really product-led organization where uh, the product manager is at the center of ensuring that the, the product is being built for the product market fit and for growth, you need a product marketer that's closely associated with that product manager. Uh, in larger organizations where it's more decentralized, you need a product marketer that's looking at all angles and looking at the industry, talking to the sales teams. And so it makes sense for them to be a little more central and a little more within marketing in those in those areas. Um, personally, I have a bias for product because I was a product manager for a couple of years in between as well. And I really think that creates an environment where you as a product marketer are also bringing back insights and it's a two-way street with product and being able to influence the roadmap. And that's that's a really ideal situation. Yeah, couldn't agree with more with you there. And I'm curious, you know, as someone, as you said, who spent some time as a product manager, I'm sure you, you've probably seen in, in the news or on LinkedIn that, um, you know, one of the founders of Airbnb came out that they've actually kind of merged their product manager and product marketing functions into one role. And, you know, again, as someone who's been in both of those roles before, is that something that you think might become more commonplace, especially within tech, neck, tech companies who strive, you know, to be like their peers and, and like Airbnb, kind of almost like setting a, the new standard? Yeah, I might, this might be a hot take from my side. I'm not sure. <laughs> because one of the reasons I do really believe that product marketing came into such a need is because a product manager was, you know, they call them the mini CEOs. And in some ways it's true. And uh, definitely in other ways that there's a lot more happening that in, in that role, but they're doing a lot of work. And, and as a PM, you're looking at the end to end of the product. And sometimes you aren't able to dedicate the amount of time necessary to be talking to your customers and to be able to get that feedback you need to and really immerse yourself in the problem space versus the solution space. and in my opinion, that's where product marketing really came up to be a bigger need where you're you're not just another stakeholder for the product manager, but you're really adding value from that perspective to help the product manager. And so it might, you know, depending on the situation, um, if I were to be really diplomatic, it might definitely work for it to be a one single person. Um, but that's a really, really critical role that might be a single, single level of, of failure in that instance. And so you do you do need to, especially in larger organizations where more needs to get done and, and there is so much more complexity in the, in the sales process as well as in the product development process, it makes sense to have more talented people and more skills thrown at that really important area. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think that's definitely one of the interpretations that I've seen about you know, with that decision right. at Airbnb is that 
you know, you've got such two strategic functions, it becomes quite challenging for one person to realistically take those two things, um, or all of those things on, I should say, not just those two things. Um, And I I wonder if we get to a point where there's maybe an even more strategic or, you know, product owner who sits above product marketing and product that kind of brings those two perspectives together. Because I think oftentimes, you know, even as we discussed in your, you know, where you've seen product marketing live, if product manager reports into a product leader and product marketing reports into a marketing leader, right. you don't really have that single perspective to, to bring those two things together. The alignment. So right. Like that's, that's what I would, you know, if I were, you know, setting up a company from scratch and needing to build out those two functions, I would love to see someone who might necessarily not have a direct line of ownership to those two roles, but at least has like a dotted line of oversight to get that alignment, as you said, so that, both of those things are being handled by an individual and giving them the dedication and and effort that they need to be successful. But at least those perspectives and those efforts are being, you know, done hand in hand. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And to me, sometimes uh, there are certain areas or organizations that I love when I see it's divided out into initiatives. And so you have potentially enterprise or, or SMBs as separate initiatives. But then within that, it's almost like a pod structure where you have a product marketer and a product manager, but they roll up to your point to a single source of, uh, you know, a GM for that initiative or a lead for that initiative. And that makes a lot of sense as well. Yeah, actually. uh, And I like the way that you framed it as that pod structure, because that's actually something that we do at Jobber is we've got these strategic initiatives that, you know, can change from quarter to quarter or year to year. But they are, you know, we kind of have these pod teams that bring representatives across the entire org, and they are usually led by an executive sponsor. So again, there's not a direct line of people management, but there is at least one person steering the ship and bringing in those different perspectives. So yeah, you know, exactly. I think that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you know, you mentioned, you know, in your past life, you were a product manager, but even as a product marketing manager, you've been able to work at some pretty interesting companies here in Canada. And you know, before we hit record you and I were talking about how we don't often get to speak to fellow Canadians, PMM, uh, fellow Canadian PMMs rather. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious as someone who's worked in both the product and product marketing space at some very well-known and well-established Canadian companies, how has product marketing differed between your experiences at, let's say, you know, a Bell or a Kijiji or even the Weather Network? Yeah. Uh, and hundred <laughs> percent, it's amazing to talk to a fellow Canadian and, and know the brands and, and um, have commonality. Um, in terms of bigger and smaller organizations, definitely product marketing has a more focus on, uh, you know, I mentioned launches before. Um, in larger teams, you know, launches and additions to the product get a lot more focus from product marketing, as well as I should say customer focus as well, understanding your audience, understanding the niches and the, the specific needs and wants. Um, were something that I picked up in larger organizations like Bell as well as um, Kijiji and the Weather Network. What's really interesting, though, is understanding and learning and imbibing the processes and the frameworks for these launches. Uh, In my experience, that really helped me kind of take that in and go into a startup or a scale-up to be able to set those rails up for it to be scalable and successful for future launches going going ahead. Um, but what I loved, of course, there are pros and cons in both. And what I loved about startups and scale-ups is you're coming in and you're having influence on kind of the 360-degree view of, of, the, of the product as well as of the go-to-market process itself. Uh, looking into strategic activities like win-loss analysis was so helpful for me to get a well-rounded idea of the reasons we're winning or the reasons we're losing 
And being able to take that in when I'm creating positioning and messaging for our product and providing voice to that, that gives you a full 360 degree circle. And uh, definitely the impact of that is, is huge on any activity that you're doing within a smaller company. Um, but of course, that was possible for me only because I learned from a larger company and I was able to be part of a bigger process that I could imbibe from. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you work in product marketing, a company the size and scale of Bell, for example, or even, you know, Kijiji, which is a, you know, newer tech company here in Canada, I mean, they've yeah. been around for a while, but, you know, not nearly as long as Bell has. When you stepped into those roles, was product marketing already established function or were you part of the efforts to, to make it an established one? Because again, as I said, a company like Bell has been around a lot longer than the function of product yeah. marketing has existed in its formal definition today. Yeah, you kind of mentioned it. So Bell has been around for, for much longer. So when I joined in, I joined a bigger product marketing function. And we were part of the larger department that was with product. And so we were almost able to have a one-to-one -one between PMs and PMMs. And I was able to learn from my director of product marketing and my manager of product marketing and, and look at how it was established. Um, and that was really interesting because that was really early on without dating myself in terms of what product marketing meant to companies and, and the industry as a whole. Uh, and so when I came into companies like Kijiji, uh, I was the first product marketer coming into a company. Um, and definitely that had a different lens as to what was needed and being able to set the fundamentals and run from there. Uh, and that was picked up from small scale companies. Um, Ad Poller was another example of it, where you're coming in and really setting up cross-functionally. This is such a cross-functional role, which I, by the way, love about it. But that's what helps um, helps you understand what the thread is, what the commonality is between sales and product and marketing and, and being able to get all of that together and set it up. Whereas at a bigger company like Bell, it's it was already established and you're coming in to ensure that the launches that you're owning, owning and taking to market uh, have the right voice and have the right um, kind of messaging going out in the right channels. I find that so interesting because I, I would have guessed the inverse to be true. I would have thought that, you know, Kijiji being the newer tech forward company, um, right. you know, exclusively existing yeah. online to be the one that's more progressive and, and have a product marketing function almost from day one. But to hear, you know, you be the first hire uh, within product marketing at Kijiji and, and Bell almost kind of having that more established structure, I, I find so surprising. Maybe that's my own bias towards telecom in general here in Canada, but um, <laughs> thanks for sharing that because I would have I would have thought the exact opposite to be true. No, yeah, for sure. It's it's interesting, you know, it's I think especially when you're coming in into a company that is part like Kijiji is part of a bigger company of eBay, right? And so I'm sure eBay had a more established structure and, and this was kind of more of a satellite. Um, as well, one of the things when we're talking about pros and cons, I just want to mention as well for if you're coming in as a founding PMM or the first PMM, there's there's a lot of uh, establishment that you need to make. There's there's of course the evangelizing of product marketing that you need to do internally as well as externally, but also understanding if the rest of the organization understands what the value of it is and how do you actually showcase that value. That was a learning journey for me for sure. From when I started off as the first PMM in the first company to today, and that's something that you you know I'm sure you've covered in other podcasts, but something that I take very seriously. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely some inherent challenges of being the, the lone PMM or the first PMM hire at an org, just regardless of, of how long the company's been around. But you're right, we could we could talk about that for ages. And that's, yeah. you know, maybe we'll have you on in a future episode to dig into that more. But what I, what I really want to talk to you about today, um, 
you know, beyond just exploring the Canadian tech scene is the experience you had at Hoka. Um, you know, it's not often I get product marketers to, to give a pretty deep, like robust overview of what it's like to oversee pricing changes. Those tend to be experiences that a lot of companies mm-hmm. hold quite closely for obvious reasons. Which is why I'm excited to have you on to talk about your experiences in driving a large-scale pricing change at Polka. So I'm curious, who within the company initiated the project? Was it the CEO? Was it product marketing? What was the thinking behind you know, wanting to explore the change? Yeah, that's a great question. When I came in, again, I was I came in as a director of product marketing within Polka, and I, I came in to build that department. But one of the things that I was I was able to glean on is having conversation with product, uh, the VP of product, and the VP of sales, as well as VP of marketing. Um, and the initiation of a change in pricing came from the VP of product, and it made so much sense because what was what was the need for the change was the fact that the value within the product had changed so much since its initial stages, right? And the VP of product was very aware of that and how much we have put into the product over the years and what the value of it can be on the other end. Um, and for a company like Polka, for instance, the pricing for the product hadn't changed for a long time, whereas the product itself had had a lot of change. And so initiation from the pro- VP of product wasn't surprising. What was then surprising was to reflect on the value addition and the changes in the product. And then, of course, to be able to um, research and understand where the pricing actually needs to fall and what are the different areas of impact that it has, which was much more overarching than just product. Again, surprised by by your answer. I'm, I don't, I don't yeah. know how often it would be for product to initiate that kind of change. I would think almost I mean, I know for sure sales is never the first uh, teams, almost never the first team, I should say, to raise your hand and say, we need to raise prices or change pricing. Um, but uh, but product I find interesting because, again, I, I would think that there'd be some hesitation to change pricing in a way that could impact key product metrics, whether it's adoption, you know, engagement, conversion. Um, so, yeah, I, I find that interesting. And I think very progressive of, of your VP of product at the time to, to take that perspective because you're right. It's very easy for an organization to lean on its existing pricing. You know, if it's not hurting us today, it's working for us. Why would we touch it? And for the VP of product to recognize that, hey, we brought this product so far along and added so much value that we're actually underselling our services, I, I, I find so refreshing. Um, so yeah. thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Now, the other thing I wanted to touch on when it comes to the pricing changes, oftentimes in product marketing, a big part of our day-to-day is project management, right? Like we're not obviously mm-hmm. formally project uh, managers and they're, you know, very differences between or very big differences between a project manager and a product marketing manager, certifications, requirements, responsibilities, all that fun stuff. But again, as I said, because there's this element of project management in product marketing, I'm curious how you approached this change from a project management perspective. Did you, you know, start with the target launch day and then work back? Did were there specific milestones in place that you had to hit? And more generally speaking, like how did you go about scoping out the work? Yeah. Phew, how much time have you got? Uh, this was uh, unsurprisingly, or maybe surprisingly, this was one of the biggest changes that uh, took place in the organization, uh, mainly because, like I mentioned, it's it was initiated by product. And, and one of the things that I wanted to mention there as well is that uh, our VP of product and our VP of marketing worked really closely when we were talking to analysts, for example, and understanding how other solutions were priced in the market really helped kind of develop that understanding as well. 
But having started from there, it touches every single part of the organization that you can imagine, right? And so from payments to billing to legal to, of course, sales, sales support. Um, and then the, when the pricing change that we had impacted current customers as well as new customers. Uh, and so that meant looking at our current customer uh, pricing and looking at where they would be. Do we need to grandfather them into something or does it look like we might be uh, cannibalizing ourselves or maybe seeing a little bit of churn uh, and understanding what that risk and reward looks like? Um, and I would say it's it's a different, it's definitely a phased process, but the very first step is definitely looking at research and looking at the market, talking to analysts, like I mentioned, looking at competitors and what their pricing looks like, uh, and understanding at the same time that your, your competitor's pricing might be for a product that has a different set of offerings than you do in many aspects, and then having a view of what that looks like for yourself. And internally understanding what your costs are, what your um, you know bandwidth and head count looks like in terms of building your product as well and pushing that out to market and vendor costs, et cetera. But the research phase is really where all of the bigger stones are, are set in place. And from there, then pulling in the right stakeholders um, and ensuring that we had consistent communication to make the other decisions, which were I would call like second level decisions. So do we need to have discounts on top of this? What does support level look like for each of these uh, pricing structures? Um, and so looking at those from the perspective of all of our departments was really important. And of course, finally, the execution and launch of it, where then you're pulling in a different set, but a more uh, more kind of hands-on set of uh, set of stakeholders to actually get this to the finish line. So I did it in three phases. And, and definitely, if you want to use a Gantt chart, or you want to use something to kind of keep track of, not just, you know, what are the steps that you're getting completed, but what the timelines look like, and the resources that you need, and the stakeholders that are pulled in, that would be really helpful. One thing I would say from a project management perspective that I started doing for this project and really helped me a lot is just a decision log. Every decision that we made, uh, major or minor, you know, log it in, uh, write a context in terms of what the decision was and why it was made. Uh, because multiple times we actually went back to it wondering, why did we make this decision or did we already make this decision? And so because there's so many moving parts that it's really helpful to have a log of it. Yeah, I think that's some really good practical advice and definitely some advice I wish I had had given to me in overseeing a couple of pricing changes myself. So I'm sure there are many listeners who will who will take that advice to heart. Um, you know, when the initial conversation to explore this pricing change came about, or, or several conversations, how many it took place, did the team approach product marketing and say, hey, we want to make a pricing change? When's the earliest we can have this in market? Or was it, hey, we want to have new pricing in market by this date? Like, I'm curious what the calculus was behind timing. Yeah. One of the things that... I don't think we started off doing, but I wish we did, but we ended up doing anyway, is the fact that the industry that you're in and the market that you're in and the seasonality is really, I think it's really paramount. If you can ensure that the pricing change and a buffer after launch is given to when the season actually hits, you are taking the most out of the market and you're making the most of the market. And so that's eventually what we ended up doing. We were in the manufacturing industry. Uh, and so seasonality depends on the kind of manufacturing you're looking at, food and beverage versus automotive. 
Um, but giving a quarter after launch for the pricing change to take effect with our customers as well as our new prospects and helping them digest that change and be able to set up, set up their uh, function and solution for success really helped then make the most of the seasonality when it came through. And so you would see our metrics directly impacted by that kind of a workback schedule. Uh, what we did start with was just, especially in the research phase, we we didn't really have a timeline. And in a way, I think that was good in hindsight 2020, just because there were so many unknowns and there's so many big blocks that you're not sure where it fits, that I feel like we might have boxed ourselves in if we have a very specific timeline or date that we we're following. Um, but once we put the big blocks in place, we started thinking about what the timeline looks like. And that was a really helpful way to kind of go about it. Um, I do wish we had seasonality in mind from the very beginning, but yeah, it works out that you're researching with an open mind and you're kind of a little bit of an open sandbox. Yeah, again, I think that's some fantastic advice. And I know I've been in situations where, you know, pricing chains have been kind of passed down the chain to get them in before mm-hmm. the end of a specific fiscal period, whether it's a given quarter or the end of the fiscal year. And I think you're right. If you can, given the circumstances, allow the market to dictate the timing in a way, right. um, whether it's because of seasonality, whether it's because of macroeconomic changes, whether it's just because of you know customer behavior, that's likely not only going to make the process easier for everyone internally, but for the customers as well, because then you can kind of draw that point with them and yeah. say, hey, you know, we're doing this in the buildup to when we know know, these changes are going to have the most impact. And, you know, obviously every customer is going to react to that change differently, but at least you have a starting point for that conversation that doesn't feel like it was just an arbitrary decision made to satisfy leadership or the board, you know, insert, you know, whoever you're accountable to uh, in that context. So yeah, that's, that's some good advice. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, for sure. I think you also need to just keep in mind that the market is consistently changing while you're making all of these decisions. So it's not kind of a freeze all and, and you're going with that. It's a real world situation, right? So that changes yeah. things. And not only is the market changing, but internally, there are a lot of changes happening outside of right. just the pricing change itself. I have found, again, you know, in my experience going through pricing changes is that the decision will be made that prices need to change. And then in the process of figuring out when, for whom, by how much, are there other changes right. that need to take place? Other things are happening in the background that can influence those decisions. And again, that's why I'd like to go back to your your um, suggestion as having a decision log is you can track those decisions and have that context as you suggested to, to help understand you know why we're making those decisions or or, or what decisions still need to be made. Um, mm-hmm. and i and I find that, you know, taking people along for the ride internally as well and having right. those decision logs, I'm sure would be a good reference point to say, hey, you know you might not have been actively involved in that decision, but because of what was happening, with our customers and the market or internally, this is what we came to. And then it becomes hopefully an easier thing to digest and understand. hundred percent. I think stakeholder management plays such a big part in this. And I guess it touches on project management to your point as well, because keeping everyone cross-functionally involved in it from the beginning was really helpful for me because it's not just, Hey, we're throwing this on you. It's really gaining buy-in at the early stage and making sure that they feel part part of the process and um, they feel ownership of it. And so we had biweekly meetings where I made sure that we went through the decisions to your point and went through the status of things and what's coming next, just so then I can hear from them, you know, for example, the sales leadership said, well, we're hearing this from the, from the market, or there's something different from the clients. And so I'm able to take that early on where it's easier to make changes or, or have an impact versus kind of later on in the process. And just over communication was, was really helpful from that angle. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I want to go back. You talked about moments ago, the research phase and, and how much research went into this decision. So beyond some of the research that you just referenced and chatting with analysts, what additional research did you conduct? And I'm, I'm curious, you know, was pricing something that a lot of your competitors shared publicly? And if not, you know, how did you go about navigating that? Because again, I feel like depending on the market, yeah. customer base, some competitors or some, you know, maybe even all the players in the space can be hesitant to share the pricing information publicly. No, 100%. Um, and you're right. Not everybody is very open with it. And, and that was kind of a discussion that we had internally as well at the end of our pricing project. If we want to be, you know, that's a strategic decision. Do you want to be very transparent with your pricing? How do you want to work with it? And I think that's individually very important to have that conversation for. Um, in terms of research, uh, like I mentioned, you know, talking to the analysts was kind of a first step in realizing that we were kind of, we were off the mark. We were leaving money on the table, we knew in many conversations. And that was something that the analysts were able to confirm with us in terms of how the other competitors were pricing their solutions. That was corroborated by, you know, just going into our sales notes, uh, Salesforce, whatever CRM you use, you know, going in and looking at how customers are reacting when we actually share the pricing with them and share our strategy in terms of what the pricing structure looks like, depending on what they need it. And so that was a big focal point for me because that was directly talking to our customers who will face the impact of the change in terms of what their digestibility was in terms of the increase in price. Um, but also at this point, how did they value a product based on the price? Because one of the things that pricing does is it influences how customers see your product and what their perceived value of your product is, regardless of what actually involves uh, is within the product. So it's a bit of both. And so that was a big piece of it. One thing that I feel in terms of research in general that gets understated a lot is just secondary research. You know, there's we're in, we're in 2023. There's a lot of research, a lot of good material out there in terms of pricing. And while it can be overwhelming, I think it's also important to not reinvent the wheel and looking out there and seeing what works for you and what doesn't. And so that was something that I was happy that I was able to spend a lot of time in because looking at the various ways people went about pricing, you know, even even looking at examples of how another company changed their pricing or set their pricing strategy gives you an idea of where you need to be in terms of your market. Um, and so secondary was a big piece of it. Um, and of course, internally, there's a lot of work to be done to understand the cost, like I mentioned, understand what our um, budget look like and where we're heading at from that perspective, and understanding if we had goals around ARR that could be influenced by our pricing. Uh, we had ARR goals that we were closely monitoring and following as an organization, uh, and that was a metric that was important to POCA. And so that was something that we worked back from in terms of how we impacted it and how we actually changed it. Um, of course, what results in it is a lot of different sources of information, and information is only as good as how much you get out of it and how much you can analyze it. And so ensuring that you're looking at it from, you're not getting lost in that information is what I mean, and ensuring that you're looking at it from a perspective of keeping your goal in mind and understanding where you're heading to is really important. For me, laying it out out there was helpful having those conversations with you know my vps and and looking at all of the data was helpful um as well as ensuring that you're picking trends because uh, multiple sources will start to say the same thing and when that happens that means you are you are on to something where you're discovering that you need to probably ensure that you're meeting that trend yeah thanks for sharing that and there's two things that you said that i want to just double back sure. on because i think they're quite quite powerful 
one, the idea of secondary research couldn't agree more. I, I think we've all been customers of businesses that have increased prices, and we've, mm -hmm. I'm sure, seen firsthand the right way to handle it and the wrong way to handle it. And I think yeah. leveraging, you know, benchmarks and comparisons from either adjacent industries or even just industries that we participate in as consumers, I think is a great mm -hmm. touch point that product marketers, especially, you know, in enterprise spaces where it yeah. feels like, you know, it doesn't feel like it should have this kind of like consumer level experience, right. arguably could benefit from it by, by leaning yeah. in on that a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's, that's a big piece that I think, you know, I, I wanted to highlight because that's some great advice from yourself. And then the other piece was the psychology of pricing changes. I don't think it's talked about enough. Talked right. about this idea of, you know, how much pricing impacts perceived value. And I think mm -hmm. oftentimes as product marketers, we can get so focused in on, well, you know what, there's these frameworks that we can follow to come to the ideal price. We can partner with third-party agencies and it almost becomes like a binary calculation, but there's so much more behind it that, um, you know, yeah. why 100%. some marketers are former, you know, they, they get into psychology and, and, you know, consumer behavior. And so, yeah, that, that's a piece that I think yeah. if you're able to have those conversations during the process, I think just make that decision grounded in not just the numbers side of things, but the, the, the psychology behind uh, a pricing change. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, right? That you can draw parallels with that versus, how you have salary negotiations uh, during your recruitment processes. Uh, it, it's the same kind of awkward dance that that happens because with sales as well, they're they're not very keen of kind of throwing the price at the very first conversation. And that's something that, you know, is let's keep that aside. Let's talk about the value and let's talk get there. And I think that's important. And at the same time, at the end of it, when you do share the price, it also showcases how you value your own solution or a product. Um, and how you kind of showcase that to the customer. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I and I think too, again, just going back to this idea of the consumer experience informing a lot yeah. of what we do in kind of the B2B space um, or in the SaaS space or, or just in tech sales in general. You know, this, this shift, I'm just going to pull on an example. So the shift of auto manufacturers to almost try and remove the selling experience from the dealership environment. So, you know, right. Tesla being an auto manufacturer that, you can buy a Tesla online, um, yeah. you know, and the price that you see online is the price that you pay. And right. Ford is kind of signaled that they would like to go to a similar model. So I wonder if over time, we as consumers become more and more removed from this idea of having negotiated price. Cause like nobody likes to haggle. Nobody really, right. some, I'm sure there are some people who like to haggle and feel like they got the best deal, <laughs> but I would say your average person probably just wants to know how much it's going to cost them. They can compare different solutions and make a choice that they feel makes the most sense for them. So why I'm saying this is because I feel like I wonder if over time we'll see that being echoed in the B2B space where even for these enterprise deals, maybe yeah. the buyer doesn't want to negotiate. They just want to know, hey, yeah. what are you what are you selling? What am I getting for? And sure, there's a level of customization and back and forth on, well, we need these modules and not these, or we need this solution and not this one. But having that information upfront, even before the sales conversation initiates, might become the, the norm. I mean, right. again, as a consumer, that would be great. Um, you prefer but, it. Talking about yeah, the telcos exactly. and looking at their bills and the pricing structure, right? It's you you benefit from simplifying it for your customers as well, hundred <laughs> percent. Absolutely. So, given the scope of the project, I'm curious. You know, oftentimes we talk about pricing and packaging going hand in hand. So, when you were evaluating the decision and going down this path of changing pricing, did the topic of repackaging come up? And if so, how did you go about making the decision around? Yes, we should also consider a packaging change. Um, or, or no, things are fine as they are. 
Yeah, it's funny that we're talking about simplifying uh, pricing because we did go down this route. And like I mentioned, the the initiator of this pricing change was the fact that we had evolved our product so much or, you know, the the solutions that were within the product. And so it started to um, become a bigger product that was more end to end. And I think a lot of B2Bs face this. You are all in one solution, you know, one stop shop and you're kind of going down that path, which is great. But at the same time, if you're increasing price, we want it to be digestible for all of our customers, um, especially the tier threes that are coming in. And if you're widening what your TAM looks like, you want to make sure that they're able to address their particular solution, their particular problem with your particular solution. And so we did repackage and uh, I stood for modularizing the, the the solution, mainly because we had a solution which was more L&D focused, which really worked for our market and which we were really good at. But over the past years, we had also created a solution outside of that L&D module that solved different challenges and different use cases. And who best to look at it from that perspective than a product marketer to say, you know, we're not just solving one big uh, challenge, but we're also solving all of these different challenges that can be bucketed into different themes. Um, And so also the pricing for that, of course, is the module that uh, you might need very specifically might be one of the two and not everything. And so you're able to kind of start with that. And then there's a whole uh, upscaling and upcycling from that perspective to gain a customer lifetime value. Um, This was definitely something that came about from conversations that started off with pricing, but it was its own kind of re-go-to-market, if I can call it, of the entire solution to to our customers as well as to prospects. Because you're then, you know, ensuring that our materials reflected our new solutions as well as the sales teams understood how to sell the solution separately, but also not cannibalize ourselves. Um, so that was that was a really important piece for us in ensuring that we're still going ahead and selling our full solution where we can. But if it made sense, then we talk about our modular solution. So that's a nuance where we're you're not kind of ensuring uh, you're missing out on any ARR that's on the table as well, any revenue. But at the same time, you're ensuring that you're meeting your customers where they're at. I think that makes a ton of sense. And I think it harkens back to what we just talked about, this idea of, you know, customers kind of wanting to know what they're paying for and and getting that sense of transparency. You know, it's funny, literally, as we were about to hop on record, I just saw that Shopify announced um, a suite of marketing solutions for for their customers. And they're Mm -hmm. a company that does so much within the e-commerce space. They've obviously taken this approach to modulize their solution. So you can, you know, use Shopify to power your e-com website. You can use your payments and fintech solutions. Now you can use your marketing solutions. And it, it yeah. would be crazy if they were to go to market with that and say, hey, get all of that for this one crazy, insane high price. And they've exactly. identified that by trying to be this all-in-one solution for the retail and e-com space, they've needed yeah. to modularize their solutions. And it, you know, it sounds like Polka came to a similar decision. The more and more you offer, the ch- more challenging it becomes to come up with pal- packages, excuse me, that balance affordability and mm. all the value that can possibly be offered. 100%. And you, you're opening up your market a little more with that, right? You're looking at uh, different corners of the market that need one or the other solution more. Um, and I would say, you know, in terms of, and Shopify is a great example, in terms of being known for e-commerce, they do end-to-end. But in terms of understanding what you need and how you can actually make make the most of it, it's it's just helpful to be able to provide that clarity in terms of what you're getting and what the value is, as well as how we're talking about that story of challenge and pain point and addressing that pain point with the solution. Yeah, you're right. It's almost as each modular can touch on, each module, excuse me, 
of the solution can touch on a different pain point. And sometimes mm-hmm. those pains are worth more to the customer than the than than other um, pain points, right? So again, that allows you to then better align the value that you're offering to that right. specific pain and solution because you might have quite a large divergence, right? Between module exactly. A and module D. Um, yeah. So yeah, having that approach allows you to, to have that flexibility in place. Yeah. Cool. So, you know, we've talked about kind of all the decisions that are being made in the you know process of, of this um, pricing change, a lot of the research that was done. But I'm curious, when it came time to actually think about the rollout, what did that look like, right? Like once the decisions around the prices were actually set, how did you go about communicating and enabling the change internally before ultimately going to market? Yeah, this is where the rubber hits the road, right? You're it's all theoretical and happy at this point, and then you're like, okay, let's let's actually turn this into action. Um, so one of the things, of course, like this was the final phase, but a really important phase in ensuring that the right stakeholders were were talked to. And for me, that meant that they had an idea that pricing is coming down the pike, whether it's the rest of the marketing team or the sales teams who are going to actually be selling this pricing and the solution at this price, as well as the product teams who were making changes. You know, it goes hand in hand with product-led growth in some ways, which we also kind of talked about a little bit, but just ensure in terms of having the right gates at the right places within the platform to be able to lock and unlock and be able to upsell where you need. And so that really meant ensuring that they were aware of the plan. And then now in the in the implementation phase, they were very clear about the timelines and the rollout and what the end goal likely looks like. Uh, and then, of course, it's a dance between understanding what's possible within the timeframe we have and where we're heading at. And this, of course, comes down to, I think, product managers would, <laughs> would see this with every product launch uh, every day. But this includes the marketing teams, the sales teams, enabling the teams to understand very importantly for the sales teams, what the story behind the change is. You know, the last thing you want to do is kind of just throw a pricing change over the over the fence for the sales team. Like you mentioned, that's not the greatest news for them and pushing it out. What was really great is for them to hear from their own, from their own VPs or their own sales teams in terms of why they saw this change make sense. And so we had involved reps early on in terms of testing the pricing and looking at what makes sense and what doesn't. And so that was really helpful, as well as I literally kind of, you know, one of my slides in terms of our enablement for sales was to showcase all of the changes, all of the features that we've put into our product since our last pricing change. And there were over 50 changes. And so that kind of gets you a bit of a story in terms of understanding where that value is coming from and where the price is coming from. Um, as well, it's a, this is a really one thing that I learned is it's a very symbiotic industry, especially in B2B. You want your vendor to be able to sustain themselves as a business for you to then be successful as a business, as a customer as well. And so it's a really symbiotic industry where you don't want to kind of chew them out for everything that they're worth and, and you know, pay them lower than what, what the value is that you're getting, just so you can all create an ecosystem that's actually more successful down the road. And I think that was really important for our sales time, sales teams to articulate to their customers better than I'm doing right now, apparently. But at the end of the day, I think that was really important for us to kind of get through the door. Um, 
as well, in terms of implementation, we had a strategic call as to, like I mentioned, how much of our pricing do we want to make public? How much of our uh, conversations do we want to have ahead of time with our with our customers? Because they have been customers for uh, with us before this pricing change happened. And so legally as well, there's 60, 90 day notices. Look at your contracts. What does that say? And make sure that you're, you're abiding by them, as well as for new customers, how do you actually roll it out? So it was a two-pronged process and we made sure that we were able to cater to the different groups of customers that we had as well as to the prospects by ensuring that we had that runway so that's really important yeah and and i i found too it's such an interesting and sometimes challenging balance to strike between you know leading with you know this is why we're going through this change especially in conversation with customers yeah. Um, this is why we're, this is why the change is happening. This is the value that we've been able to deliver since our last change, whatever that might be, but also showing some empathy that like nobody likes pricing. Right. It's like, again, like we're all consumers, exactly. we all pay for things. Nobody likes prices going up, but you also don't want to lean so heavily into that, that it almost feels like you're apologizing for the change. So you really have to like, yeah. Hey, this is a decision we're confident in, right? Like we're, we're confident in this decision. We're making it based on you, know, you don't months. want to over-explain yourself. Yeah, exactly. And you also don't want to over-explain yourself. So the customer feels like, oh, you know, they're yeah. showing a bit of weakness isn't the right word, but like almost like lack of confidence because they're explaining so much that maybe yeah. I can push back on the change. So like, well, you know what? I don't want to pay this much. So too bad I'm out of here. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one to, to strike. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's something that you kind of have to learn almost by doing and every customer is going to react differently as I'm sure you experienced firsthand and having those conversations with sales and success and, you know, offering discounts, as you suggested, may have been the case um, where needed is, is something that is always going to be in play when pricing gets announced to when everybody's on the new on the new structure. Yeah, that's actually a good point that I should mention is from a marketing perspective, if you're looking at this, it really helps when you're increasing prices to have some limited time offers or something that you can go down with that makes it more digestible for especially your established enterprise customers who you don't want to lose uh, and you want to keep that churned down. Absolutely. So you talked about earlier, um, you know, some of the metrics that influence decisions. So I want to dig in a little bit deeper here. So I'm curious, you know, what metrics or targets were you as a team actively tracking to assess the impact of the change? Um, you know, were those, were those metrics identified at the beginning of the process? Were they given to you by an executive sponsor? Or did those decisions and metrics become identified closer to the actual launch? Yeah. So one of the pieces that I mentioned earlier was our annual recurring revenue or the ARR and understanding what your organization's North Star or North metrics are really important in a price change because it directly impacts any of the revenue or financial metrics you're looking at. And for us, it was ARR, as well as the average revenue per user, where we want to make sure that, as I mentioned, we modularized our platform, but that could also mean that our average revenue per user falls lower than what it is today. Um, and while that was the case, we, we set established areas in place where upselling and cross-selling at a, you know, the right side of the bow tie, what, what we call a bow tie, but, you know, at the, at the customer level is really important. And so the lifetime value is really what you're looking at at that stage. 
And so for us, ARR and average revenue per user was, was the metric that we started with. As we went in, of course, the deal sizes that we're looking at for new, new prospects, as well as the, uh, uh, the amount that you're spending per new customer that's coming through the door uh, made a difference as well. And at the end of the day, keeping that churn low is really important. Um, we had a threshold because you will have some churn and that's just kind of the way the game goes. But how do you make sure that it's minimized compared to how much upside you're seeing from your customers as well as new prospects is, is where we kind of struck that balance. And so I wouldn't over-index on all of the metrics possible because, of course, this touches every single thing if you think about it. Adoption, stickiness, you know, to your point, weekly and monthly usage. But at the end of the day, if you're ensuring that you keep those two uh, balanced in terms of having that revenue coming in and as well ensuring that your churn is low, you are looking at a lifetime uh, value, lifetime value increasing per customer. And that's really where you want to head in terms of sustainability. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, I've gone through, as I said, a couple of pricing changes myself, and I've definitely found having those, like, you know, two or three at most North Star metrics, as you called them, to really anchor the outcomes in. Because again, like, you know, take, for example, reducing prices. Yes, you mm -hmm. might be able to move prices lower to, you know, acquire more of the market, but what is that thing going to do to your average selling price, right? Is it going to drive yeah. downward pressure on ASP and MRR and ARR? Or if you raise prices, uh, raise prices, is the inverse going to happen? Are you going to actually yeah. reduce your customer growth numbers, but have that offset by higher AR or MRR? So it's that again, this idea of balance and having to 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 be aware of, you know, this decision is going to influence multiple metrics, and which are the ones we care about most? Which are the ones are we comfortable with maybe taking a hit in the short term as yeah. we navigate this change? And I also think it's important to as a group, you know, obviously it's different when you're talking about huge. Um, you know, enterprise deals versus, you know, SaaS um, right. deals, um, or sorry, like small SaaS skills, uh, right. deals. Um, but like knowing when to recognize that, hey, maybe like we didn't make the right call here, or maybe we need to make further adjustments because we haven't quite nailed it yet. That's an important part of the conversation that I think should be had closer to launch to say like, hey, at what point do we decide this is looking good and we can continue down this path or like, Hey, you know, maybe we made the right call or wrong call here and we didn't make an adjustment. Um, and that's a, a, a conversation that I think needs to happen more often. That's a really good point. And I should mention it at the top as well, because we talk so much about research and we talk so much about how do we come to the right price? Firstly, pricing is is inherently a balancing act to your point, right? It's it's baked into how it impacts everything that you do as a business uh, and your customers. Uh, secondly, it's so important to realize that pricing is also a testing and iterating game. And what I mean by that is, to your point, it's it's really hard to come up at the exact right price at the very beginning. And I think we were talking about this, but Harvard Business Review did a, did a really great classification of all of the metrics that we have as a business. And one of the things that's really hard to nail down was the initial pricing for a product. When you're going to launch with a new product, especially in a new market, and it's an innovative solution, uh, you don't have much to go by in terms of what, where you need to price that and how it goes. And so I would say, you know, make sure you're not going into, you know, decision paralysis where you're, you're churning your wheels and you're not understanding where it goes, but testing and iterating is really important to get to the place where it really makes sense. So do all of the things that we spoke about today for sure, but just as important as is to make sure that it's not a one and done, you're not kind of launched and you're done, even with 
with us, it was a consistent, continuous process to track all of these metrics post-launch and ensure that we had the right levers to change, uh, depending on what we were seeing from the market and how we were how they were responding to it. Yeah, I love that piece around testing and iterating. And again, to to fall back on what's happening in the consumer space as an as a reference point, I forget who was speaking on behalf of which company. It, it may have been someone from Netflix. Um, but they talked about whenever they explore pricing changes, they will actually test new pricing in smaller markets. Right. Obviously, benefit of working at a company like Netflix is you're a global company, so you can do that with right. other markets not being impacted. But just saying, hey, you know, we think this is the right price point. Maybe let's go do a three, six-month trial in a market similar to our dominant or primary market or a subsection of that market yeah. to see what the reaction and the impact looks like. And then once we get to a level of confidence that we've gotten closer to the right price, then we can go broadly. Oh, sure. Again, yeah. not every company has that luxury, but if you can afford it, that's something that, again, I've heard large yeah. consumer companies try uh, to, to success. 100%. I think that's so important. Just you know, treating it as a new product as well really helps, right? Because that's what you do with products and betas. Uh, I believe that everyone has a different version of WhatsApp or Facebook right now, and everyone's testing different things without knowing it maybe. But the same thing with pricing. I think it's so important to, like you said, try it out in a smaller segment or a market and then go from there. No, I totally agree. Awesome. Well, listen, this has been a fantastic conversation. You know, I'm sure you and I could keep going on and on about pricing and, and some of your experiences with it. But I do have to wrap up things here. And before I let you go, I'm going to ask you my last question. And that's, what's an area of focus from the realm of product marketing that you think product marketers will have to pay extra attention to this year, more so than in previous years? Yeah, there are so many activities and areas within product marketing, and it's just growing uh, from, like I mentioned, when I started, it was product launch, and it has gone to a, such a strategic level at this point. In my unbiased opinion, I think it's it's one of the most strategic uh, areas of marketing as well as product. Um, one thing that I've seen, regardless, I think, of the, the kind of market we're in or, or the industry we're in, one thing that's just going to continue to increase in terms of uh, criticality and focus is our understanding of our customers and audiences. Um, that is, I think, at the heart of, I know is at the heart of understanding, not just how you position and message things that are going to market, but also how do you want to look at yourself as a company in the future and where do you want to go in the future? And so building your wheelhouse or understanding your identity as a company or business or a solution truly lies within what your audiences are looking for and what they need in terms of pain points and and all of the good stuff that you do when you're researching your ICP or understanding your personas and having conversations. So the more you do that, the more invaluable you become as a department to the company, as well as as a company or solution to your customer. Yeah, I, I think that's spot on. And again, I think that's where product marketers can learn a lot from our friends in brand marketing in uh, you know, user research to really understand, you know, again, as you said, like what's the identity of the company? How does that then play into our positioning and our narrative that we go to customers with? How are they responding with it or to that? And the only way to get to those learnings and those that level of understanding is to, to have conversations with customers um, as often and as, as you know, frequently as you can. So I think yeah. that's some great advice. Thank you for sharing. Well, yeah, for sure. Uh, Vashnavi, this has been such a great conversation. As I said, um, you know, really appreciate you taking the time to share your experiences. I, I always love when I can chat with product marketers who are so candid about the experiences that they had and, and share that firsthand knowledge of, of things like pricing change, which I said, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, a lot of product marketers or companies don't always, aren't the, always the most forthcoming with. So thank you so much for, for being open to share. 
Happy to. Before I let you go, though, um, you know, if somebody did want to reach out to you, maybe ask you questions about navigating maybe their own pricing change project or work with you in a professional context and bring you in as a consultant, what would be the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn uh, under Vaishnavi Ravi uh, at Market Maven. You can also go to Market Maven's website, uh, marketmaven.card, that's C-A-R-R-D.co. Uh, and there's ways to reach out to me and, and look at our solutions and, and what you need. Um, but I'm always as well, just, you know, even if you're not looking for a consultant or not looking for a solution, always uh, open to chat about uh, anything and everything under the industry with industry folks. And so definitely reach out and have it chat. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Mark. For everyone still tuned in, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please help us spread the word to other product marketers. Before we leave you to get on with your day, if you want to get involved, here are a few ways you can. If you're a product marketer and you want to come on the show and speak about your day, a specific topic, or your role in general, that's one option. If you want to flex your podcast hosting skills, being a guest host is another. And finally, if you or your company want to spot to an episode, there's a third. Thanks again and have a great morning, afternoon or evening, wherever you are.